Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Well, good morning. Great to see you. Great to be back. Uh, this is I was here just three weeks ago, so it's a real privilege to be uh, here again. Uh, I was due to be here next Sunday, in fact, but um, Natalie kindly swapped with me because my little sister is getting married. Not only is she getting married, but she's getting married to that man up there, Mr. Jonathan Sanders. So, um, so uh, there you go. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, so, no, we're very excited, very excited. Um, as Dave said, we are walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And just a few weeks ago, I spoke on Jesus sending out his disciples to preach the word uh, in um, Jerusalem and beyond. And uh, when I did that uh, talk, I uh, gave uh, three um, instructions for how people in a society relate to Jesus today. I'm sure you remember them. They are pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian. Just to remind you, pre-Christian is where there is little uh, or no knowledge of Jesus uh, in a culture. Christian or Christianized is where, where cultures that are built on uh, the kind of shared moral and ethical vision for uh, Christianity. And finally, post-Christian, where a society has moved away from Christianity setting the moral vision and in many ways actually reacts and defines itself against that Christian worldview. And if that sounds familiar, that's the world we're living in right now. Now, the reason why I want to bring that up is... Uh, because of the theme we're talking about today. It's the theme of hypocrisy. Now, when you come to uh, talk to someone about Christianity, when you talk to someone about Jesus in our society today, it is likely that they would have met a follower of Jesus, and it's likely that they would have been to a church, and it's likely that they would have had some uh, knowledge of Jesus and his teachings, which means that they will have some kind of preconceived idea as to what a Christian or a follower of Jesus should be like. They'll have some kind of framework for what Christianity is or, or what it should be, and therefore this kind of standard to compare that person with, or perhaps an experience in church, or what they read about in the news about church. If they meet a follower of Jesus who is kind and considerate, that might reinforce a view that on the whole, Christians are kind and considerate. Or if they meet a Christian who is judgmental and proud, that could also fit their experience to reinforce that particular view. Because we are in this post-Christian culture, someone, they will, it's likely that people in our city have some knowledge of Jesus, will have known a follower of Jesus, and probably been to a church or know someone that goes regularly to a church. And then when you look at the data for how people determine the truth of Christianity, the primary reason why people believe uh, or, 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 or if people believe Christianity is true. The primary uh, reason that, that leads people to doubt the, the truth claims of Christianity is hypocrisy. It's not human suffering. It's not science versus faith. It's hypocrisy. 42% of people who do not follow Jesus say that is the primary reason that they doubt Christianity's truth claims. That means that in some circumstances... Followers of Jesus have not lived up to what most people perceive as the teachings of Jesus. Here's what Dave Kinnaman, the CEO of Barna, who conducted the research, said. The work of Christians is to embody Jesus, full of truth and grace. 
and reflect his image in all they say and do, the data shows they too often fall short. But here's the thing. I think if you asked Jesus a similar question, or maybe that exact question, what would cause people to doubt his teachings? What would cause people to doubt that he is the Messiah? I think he would say the same thing. And you read, when you read through the Gospels, the characteristics that seem to get Jesus more kind of upset than any other is hypocrisy. It's pride and it's self-righteousness. Especially when that hypocrisy or pride decreases your capacity to love and show compassion for the last and the least. And today, by looking at this passage in Luke 11, this famous, well-known passage that you all quote regularly, I'm sure, we're going to explore why that might be and how we can avoid falling into the same patterns. And we're going to have to explore some historical and unpack some historical context throughout this passage as well. So hopefully you can stay with me. So we're going to think about uh, three uh, areas. Who is this wicked generation that Jesus is directing his teaching to? Who are the Ninevites and the Queen of the South? And finally, what's the sign of Jonah? So firstly, who is Jesus talking to here? Who is this wicked generation? Well, that one is actually quite easy. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, in the same uh, text, in the same story, uh, he actually names who Jesus is directing this to. Matthew 16 verse 1 says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus isn't critiquing a generation in the same way that we might understand that, that word. He's not saying, you, you lazy millennials, or you terrible boomers, or whatever it might be. Jesus is critiquing a generation of religious leaders. He's critiquing the religious elite. The Pharisees and Sadducees were leaders that had a disproportionate influence on G Jewish society and are uh, portrayed in the Gospels as kind of taking it upon themselves to judge uh, and critique Jesus, his actions and his teaching and, his, and this provocation comes in this story when they ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven, which we'll talk about more later on. And throughout Luke's gospel so far, in the first 11 chapters, there's been this kind of building up of tension between the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'll just use the Pharisees just as a, a quicker way to say it today. Uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees, that kind of reaches a climax in this interaction that sets up so much of the, uh, uh, the rest of the story. Every story up until this point where we see and read about the Pharisees, they're shown to be lacking in compassion for the least of society, lacking in repentance. In Luke 7, it says that they refused to be baptized by John, which was a baptism of repentance. Uh, they were zealous and self-righteous in their pride for how they would uphold the law. Uh, and not only that, they would actually create their own rules and ways of living that go beyond the law to set up safeguards for them to not break God's law. And then they would judge other people for not doing the same thing. And finally, they were nationalistic in their pride for their own heritage and disdain for hate and hatred for other people groups. And Jesus, in this moment, is calling this out. And so far, in all of these interactions he's had with the Pharisees in Luke, it's, it's kind of like, I feel like Jesus is being patient with them. He's giving them opportunity to respond in the right way. But now, in this moment, he cannot leave their hypocrisy unchecked. So what does he do? He calls them wicked, which is not a euphemism. In the ESV, the word actually here is called evil, is, used, is the word evil. And in the Greek, this word uh, is the word panoros, which doesn't just mean evil in, in kind of character or content. Uh, if that was the, the point Jesus was making, there would be another word, uh, Greek word, that he would have used to make that point, the word kakos. Uh, panoros actually means not just evil in character or content, but actually 
not settled until they are actively harming or corrupting others with their evil, not, set, not, not content if they're not perpetrating that evil upon others. And in fact, in, an, in another uh, gospel, Jesus describes Satan as the evil one. And it's the same word that, that he uses here to describe this generation, this wicked generation, Ponoros. For Jesus, this is as serious as it gets. And this would have been a shocking thing for people to hear, given the stature that the Pharisees had in that time. Remember, this is the religious elite, the religious leaders that he is speaking to. And if we fast forward just to the end of Luke chapter 11, Jesus, there's this kind of story that unpacks a little bit of what Jesus is saying or, or why Jesus thinks the way he does. He's in the house of a Pharisee, he's been invited for dinner, uh, and he expands on this, on why this word evil would be appropriate for these leaders. Here's what it says. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Just, just a note here, uh, Jesus is not breaking any of God's kind of moral law or any of the law we see in the Old Testament. This is one of the safeguards, again, that the Pharisees put in place. And that's why he's surprised that Jesus didn't do it. it said, then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not, did not the one who made the outside made the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy. You care about what's on the outside, not, not what's on the inside, not the heart. You wash your hands before you eat, but you don't care for the poor. And in, then he goes to give, he gives six woes that describes uh, the way the Pharisees have ruined not just their own relationship with God, but how others have uh, related to God. And they are hypocrisy, pride, fraud, setting unattainable standards, distorting the message and the purpose of the prophets and false teaching. This is Jesus' justification for why wicked or evil generation is not an exaggeration, not just evil in character, but evil in influence. Back to the start of Luke 11. So Jesus gives this cutting critique, wicked generation, and tells them the only sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah, and then compares, them the, compares the Pharisees to the Ninevites and the Queen of the South. So next set of questions. Who were the Ninevites? Who was the Queen of the South? Now, both of these examples are references uh, from stories in the Old Testament found in Luke, uh, 1 Kings and the book of Jonah. In 1 Kings, we read of the Queen of the South, or more commonly known as the Queen of Sheba, uh, which would be in modern-day Yemen, who had great influence and wealth and heard of a king of Israel called Solomon. She hears of his fame in relation particularly to his wisdom and to the God of Israel. And it says that she travels to Jerusalem specifically to test him with hard questions. Now, that, that's quite a big deal. That is a long way to travel for someone who is so wealthy and powerful and probably very busy as the queen of Sheba, and yet she does it. And Solomon actually proves worthy of his reputation. His wisdom is unlike anything she's ever encountered. And it says that as she saw the wisdom of Solomon, the wealth and prosperity of the land, and the offerings made in the temple, it says that she was overwhelmed. And this is what she said. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And then she gives Solomon the most abundant of gifts. We'll talk more about her in a moment, but that's the Queen of the South. What about the Ninevites? 
Well, Nineveh was the largest city in the brutal Assyrian Empire. Now, throughout the story of Israel, they were both literally Israel's enemies and oppressors, but also they used metaphorically to depict the evil consequences of the fall. The fact that there could be such an evil empire as Assyria was a direct consequence of sin. And what Jesus is specifically referring to here is the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is the well-known story of a prophet who was called by God to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh because God was going to bring his judgment and justice for on their evil brutality and destroy a city. But Jonah doesn't want to do that. Instead, he runs away. But the reason he runs away isn't because he's afraid of the Ninevites. He's not afraid, in some senses, of what will happen to him. Jonah is afraid that God will show them compassion. Jonah in chapter 4 quotes this famous verse from Exodus 34 where God describes his own character. Jonah says, I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah wanted the city to be destroyed. He wanted God to send calamity, and he was afraid that God would show them compassion. So Jonah runs. And I'm sure you all know the story. He boards a boat. God sends a storm. Jonah voluntarily jumps off to save the sailors and is swallowed up by a large fish. Not a whale, by the way. It's a, we don't know if it was a whale. It could have been. It says big fish. He then agrees to go to Nineveh, preaches the message he's been sent to bring, and Nineveh repents and the city saved. So, back to Luke 11. Why does Jesus use these two stories to prove his point? Why does this back up his point against the Pharisees? Well, Jesus here uses two very well-known non-Israelite examples, which is intentional and very important, the Queen of the South and the people of Nineveh, to emphasize the pride and hypocrisy of these religious leaders. What marked out the people of Nineveh in the story of Jonah? What makes them stand out? It was their repentance. What marked out the Queen of the South? What makes her stand out? It was her open heart, her humility, despite her power and the extraordinary lengths that she would go to discover truth and wisdom. And we know that Jonah was not the most compassionate of prophets. And we know that Solomon, in all his wisdom, was nothing on Jesus. And yet, Nineveh and the Queen of the South respond in the most remarkable way. We know that this interaction was provoked by the Pharisees asking Jesus for a sign from heaven, some kind of proof that Jesus was who he said he was. And yet we already know through the Gospel of Luke that the Pharisees have witnessed Jesus do the most extraordinary things that could only have come through miraculous power. They've seen people healed of of disease in front of their eyes. But nothing has ever been good enough for the Pharisees. There's always something that offends them or something to disregard from what Jesus was doing and saying. Why is that? Well, it's the opposite of the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, an unrepentant, hard heart, proud, more concerned with keeping up the illusion of righteousness than actually being righteous, the illusion of searching for truth when he was stood right in front of them. And I think they're they're asking for a sign, despite what they've seen and heard Jesus do, because they don't want to repent. They don't want to follow Jesus' radical teaching on generosity or compassion, loving your enemies, picking up your cross, sacrifice. Their pride is so ingrained 
that they cannot fathom the thoughts of a poor carpenter from a nowhere town being the Messiah of Israel. They were too concerned with their false piety and the unattainable standard they set for their followers. The Pharisees want a sign. And Jesus says that they will get a sign, but it will not be the one they expect. The sign that they'll get is the sign of Jonah. So last question, what is the sign of Jonah? As we know, the journey Jonah goes on to announce God's word to Nineveh is through the belly of the great fish. Let me read from Jonah 1, uh, verse 17. Uh, And this is uh, after Jonah has voluntarily been uh, thrown overboard. This is what it says. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah goes through a version of death and resurrection to preach repentance to Nineveh. He goes to the grave, as he calls it, only to get his own form of resurrection. And Jesus gives this cryptic message that the only sign the Pharisees will get is his own visit to the grave. And Jesus would have known that for these Pharisees who revel in their power and authority, they would not, could not fathom a crucified Messiah. It would have been the most subversive and shocking conclusion that God himself would willingly give his life, willingly be thrown overboard to lay aside his power and authority for the love of his people in the most excruciating of ways. That was the only sign they were going to get, and it was a sign that they would not understand. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church, and I think you can hear uh, some of this story in, in how Paul writes. He may even even had it in mind. 1 Corinthians 1, from verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The Jews demanded a sign. The Greeks looked for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So a couple of questions for us to ponder this week. What are you demanding? And what are you looking for? Now this word demanding, I think, is a a good summary of the posture of the Pharisees. To demand something suggests that you have a right to receive it. It's how the Pharisees saw themselves. They were the ones who could only possibly be as righteous or righteous enough to decide who Jesus was. They could demand anything they wanted. And inherent in that posture, in that way of seeing yourself, is pride. To demand something of someone else requires nothing from you. You don't have to change. You don't have to help. You don't have to get alongside. And so the stumbling block, as Paul describes it, is that the Pharisees had to be faced with something that challenged that perspective. Maybe you don't know everything you thought you did. 
Maybe you're not as righteous as you think you are. Maybe you're not the one to tell Jesus who he should be, how he should live and what he should do. Or to put it another way, who are we to demand anything from God? Who are we to sit in the judgment seat? And the challenge for us is that the, the Christian worldview has no room for pride. It's knowing that we are but of the dust, nothing without our maker, whilst at the same time we are made in his image and he calls us his children. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And one of the, the facets of the Christian faith, I think often um, maybe we don't talk about as much or uh, within our, our, the way our church or our church practice um, doesn't do as much is the uh, practice of confession and the practice of repentance. Often we uh, bring them into the sort of salvation moment rather than this kind of daily ongoing practice as we repent, as we seek to turn from our ways, turn from our pride and follow Jesus. Or confession, this incredible uh, act where we kind of let the, the sin, the pain, the whatever is going on inside, let it out through our words, either to God or to another person. And here, often spoken over us, the grace of God in our lives, the forgiveness of God in our lives. Many of you will know the steps course that we run. It's one of the most important things we do here. And uh, in my experience, I've done step, steps twice. The most powerful uh, step is the step of confession, step five. And I've had the privilege of doing it twice, once um, kind of speaking my own confession and hearing grace uh, over my own life. And the second time I, I did that as well, but I also got to be the person to speak grace over someone else. I was one of the facilitators. And it is just the most profound moment to be able to hear, for some people, stuff they've never told anyone. Um, for years and years, holding on to pain or, or sin or guilt or shame. And you, you speak these words and you see the kind of, uh, both the sort of uncomfortable tension of somebody, but then the tension of that being released as you speak God's grace, as you speak absolution over their life, as you kind of, um, in some senses, represent God in that moment uh, to speak grace over someone. It's the most beautiful thing. And that is a gift that we have as a church. It's one of the reasons why community is such an important part of what we do. It's totally to become family. It's totally to come against the 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 challenges of loneliness in our city, but it's also to create a culture where we feel like we can confess to one another, where we can bear each other's burdens. And the safest place to be to do that, to, to confess, is in the, the deep friendships, relationships, community, family, that is the church. And it's one of these practices, I think, that we've in many ways lost. I think we perhaps should rediscover in the years ahead. Here's how Tish Harrison Warren uh, puts it in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She writes, our failures or successes in the Christian life are not what define us or determines our worth before God or God's people. Instead, we are defined by Christ's life and work on our behalf. We kneel. We humble ourselves together. We admit the truth. We confess and repent. Together, we practice the posture that we embrace each day, that of a broken and needy people who receive abundant mercy. There's no room for pride in the way of Jesus. And all Jesus actually demands of us is to see ourselves as we truly are, as we really are, and to see him as he truly is. Question number two, what are you looking for? I resonate more with this, this word looking than demanding because it, it le at least it suggests a journey or not fully understanding or wanting to know more. And I think probably a lot of, the, of us can resonate with that language. In fact, it might be the reason you are here. Maybe you are looking for something. Maybe you are searching. 
You feel like you've been on a journey trying to find out who you are and what this is all about. And maybe you'll take any sign, any hint of an experience or acknowledgement that this and you matters. Any hint of direction as to the right way to walk. But what Paul tells us, or what, what he would tell us, is that you can't find it in your own wisdom. And the sign is that Jesus has come to not only show us the way, not only be the sign, but to actually carry us there. Now, the, the irony with this kind of uh, tension between the Pharisees and Jesus is that Jesus actually also raises the bar in what he expects of his followers. In order for it, be, for it to be impossible to break the law, as I said, the Pharisees set up these countless other rules to act as safeguards, and we read some of them in the Gospels, but they are all external. They are all on the surface. But Jesus sets the bar in a different way. Instead of creating more rules and regulations to make, say, adultery impossible, he says, don't even look at a woman lustfully. Instead of making murder impossible, he says, don't get angry. Love your enemies. The Pharisees focus on the externals, but Jesus on the internals. The Pharisees emphasize appearances, but Jesus the heart. And here's the main difference between Jesus' standard and the Pharisee's standard. Jesus, once he's preached this new uh, standard for us on his Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew 8, as he was up on the hillside, kind of mirroring and echoing Moses as he received the law of God, as he was up on the mountainside, in Matthew 8 it says that he came down from the mountainside. And he meets two people. The first two people he meets, as Matthew records it. The first is a man with leprosy. The second is a Roman centurion. The outcast and the elite. The leper Jesus heals. And the centurion Jesus heals the servant and says of him, I found no one in Israel with such faith as this. The least and the outcast of society and the elite non-Jewish oppressor. This is the point Jesus makes. Everything flows from the heart, and his kingdom is for everyone. He isn't just the sign, but he's going to come down from the mountain and carry us home. Here's how James K. Smith put it, how he describes this kind of journey of faith and Jesus' role in it. He says, you can't get there from here, but what if someone came to get you? You can't get to that last thing, but what if it came to get you? And what if that thing turned out to be a someone? And what if that someone not only knows where the end of the road is, but promises to accompany you the rest of the way, to never leave you or forsake you until you arrive? This is the God who runs down the road to meet prodigals. Grace isn't high-speed transport all the way to the end, but the gift of his presence the rest of the way. And it is the remarkable promise of his son who meets us in this distance. My father's house has many rooms. There is room for you in your father's house. His home is your end. He is with you every step of the way there. The sign of Jesus is the cross. It's already come. and We read about it in his word. Out of his obedience to the Father and his love for us, he died on the cross so that we might have life, both now and in, the com in life to come. What sign are you waiting for? The sign is Jesus. He'll be with you on the journey, and he'll be with you forever at the end. Why don't we stand and the worship team come back? I think it's a really human thing to ask Jesus to reveal himself to us 
I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage, and I hope that's not how you've heard it. I know many people that have come to faith where they've just said, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. I think that can be a beautiful thing. And also, I don't think Jesus is talking about here uh, the things that are in our hearts, the desires of our heart, or the things that we would love God to do for us, or heal, or set free. I think he wants us to bring those things to him. And so I'm just going to read over us uh, this, the words of Jesus from Revelation. Uh, it's just, a, just beautiful words reminding us that he is with us every step of the way. And that you can bring whatever it is that is in your heart, whatever it is that you are going through, whatever journey, whatever sign, whatever, whatever it is that you are thinking right now, that thing that's come to mind, you can bring that to Jesus. He is there listening, waiting for you. And then we'll worship together. These are the words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. Lord Jesus, we just invite you into our hearts this morning. Lord, we hear your knocking. We hear your voice. Would you come by your presence? Would you heal our hearts? Would you show us who you are? Lord, would we just get an assurance and an increased confidence of who you are, of your cross, of your resurrection. That, Lord, the shame, the guilt, the pain that we carry, God, was carried on the cross, that was beaten on the cross, defeated on the cross, and now we can know new life. Jesus, I pray that we could experience that in our hearts. Peace in our minds, peace in our hearts this morning. Lord, we pray against any sense of pride or self-righteousness in us. We repent of that. We confess it, Lord Jesus. Lord, would we never lose the incredible fact that all that we have, all that we are is a gift from you. It's your grace. It's your love. 